Isaiah 29. And if you feel led to, feel free to read out loud with your mask on. I'm going to read verses 13 to 17. We're going to look at the whole chapter. I pray it be a blessing to you and a help to your life as it has been to mine this week in studying and preparing for this. Isaiah 29, verse 13. Wherefore, the Lord said, For as much as his people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the precept of men, Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. And they say, Who seeth us, and who knoweth us? Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work work say unto him that made it, He made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, He has no understanding? Is it not yet a very little while? And Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest. I think the King James translators, when they translated the Bible from the Hebrew Masoretic text into English, and the the Greek in the New Testament into English, I don't think they had any idea that many of the words and phrases that God led them to use, because they were supernaturally guided by the Lord. Holy men of God, the Bible says, spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that every word of God is inspired. It's God-breathed. They had no idea that some of the words and phrases they were using would become part of our everyday language and would be used as idioms or colloquialisms in how we speak. And you'll notice one of them here in verse 16. He talks about the turning of things upside down. Now, when we use the term upside down, we refer to something that is, becomes chaotic, something that is out of control, something that is not right. We live in a world that is very upside down right now. You might be living a life right now. And in a situation, financially, family, emotionally, even mentally, and most importantly, spiritually, that you feel like everything is upside down. But God has a word for us because, as we'll see in Isaiah 29, God helps us to make right things, right things up when things are upside down. Let's see this morning what God has for us. Father, bless your word now today. David said, the entrance of thy word giveth light. We acknowledge the sovereignty of your word, the authority of your word. The Bible says that you gave us your word for correction, for instruction in righteousness, for doctrine, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I pray this morning our spirit between us and you would be right, 
We pray for a spirit of worship and understanding. Thank you, Lord, for fam church family members who've come back to church today that have not been here in for weeks, and I know they feel the same as I do. They're just excited about being in church today. Thank you for those watching by live stream. In fact, some new friends that are watching today by live stream. Father, would you use the message to be life-changing and transformational? And I pray that, Lord, the grace of God would work in our hearts, and, Lord, would lead to salvation, would give strength and weakness, and would sustain us. And God, help us to get through this week. And we pray these things of you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you ever felt like you've been physically upside down, but uh, I had an experience many years ago where that happened. My wife and I, she had corrected me. I, I told the story on, I record my, my message for the Chinese department on Thursdays, and so it's the same message, but I record it with translation. And uh, I forgot to ask her when I put down this illustration, uh, the timing of this, I thought it was after we got married. She corrected me late yesterday. She said, no. She said, honey, what you're going to share at the church, it actually happened while we were engaged. We were engaged. We had one of those days where it was just kind of a, I think it was a Friday or Saturday. We just had, you know, we really didn't have anything planned, and there was nothing going to church and things. And this is many, many years ago. And so I, I had this novel idea. We didn't have children or anything. We were much younger. I said, hey, why don't we go down to Santa Cruz? And if you're familiar with Santa Cruz, you know, there's the boardwalk. And I just thought, you know, let's go do the rides and things like that. The weather is kind of like right now. And honestly, I'm not much of a ride person. I kind of like roller coasters, things like that. But anything that turns my stomach upside down or gets my head upside down, I wasn't made for that. Uh, I, was, I was thinking high school, I wanted to try it for gymnastics because I, I thought it was pretty cool until I saw the guy spin around like this several times. I said, that's not me. I, don't, I still don't have very good equilibrium. And so uh, we went down to Santa Cruz and walked around. And honestly, I didn't tell my wife this, but in, in a little way, it's kind of the, you know, the young man thing. I thought, you know, I want to impress her that I could take this. No matter what the ride is, I could take it, you know. And so we went, went, got on a couple of, of you know, easygoing rides and things like that. And then we went to the one that's called the Rock-A-Plane. I don't know if you're familiar with the Rock-A-Plane. But the rocket plane is a Ferris wheel, but it's not your traditional Ferris wheel. Now, Ferris wheels, that typically, they, they kind of have a little bit of a, of a rush when the first time you, you go up and down. And after that, it's kind of like you get used to it, so you're not, it really doesn't do anything. The rocket plane is a Ferris wheel that puts you in a cage. And in this cage, you sit on one side, and the other person sits on the other side. But as it goes up, once it turns around, it starts spinning around like this. Well, we watched it one time, and I thought, yeah, you know, it doesn't look too bad. I think I could handle that. So we paid, we paid, gave them the ticket, we went in, they, they strapped me on one side, strapped my wife on the other side, you know, we were engaged at that time, and we got on there, and the Ferris wheel started going up, and then it got to that point where the cage went upside down. Now, the first revolution, okay, you know, that kind of the feeling, I, I wasn't, I said, oh, okay, but then the second revolution, by the second revolution, I said, I know I'm not supposed to be on this ride. And it started going around and around, and we're turning upside down, and we're screaming. I'm screaming. I'm screaming louder. In fact, I think I was screaming the loudest of everybody on that Ferris wheel. And got, it got to the first revolution. I said, hey, can you stop the Ferris? Stop this thing. I'm sick. I think I'm going to die. I mean, I, that's literally what I said. I think I'm going to die from this. And it went around. I said, please stop. And my wife is saying, please stop. We're stopped. And the guy there at the control, all he did was laugh because, of course, he's heard this before, right? He's just laughing his head off. And I said, this is not funny. Please stop the thing. I'm about to die. Well, you know, it was a, about a three-minute, four-minute ride. To me, it felt like three months. Amen, you know? It felt like three months going over and over and over again. They stopped the ride. I got off, and I'm staggering around. My head's going like this. And I said, you didn't stop the ride. He just kept laughing. Well, you know, after a few steps, I started to get my equilibrium by, all right. And I said, oh, maybe it wasn't so bad. So we went on. Then we went to this next ride. The next ride is called the Cyclone. Now, just the very name should tell you it's bad. Amen, you know? It's called the Cyclone. This is the one when you stand up, you enter it, it's level, 
You stand up, and they strap you inside. You're standing up. They strap you down. You've got this harness on. And, and so it looks okay. And I watched it. It didn't seem that bad. You know, watching and being on are two different things. Amen. You know, watching a rocket ship go up and the G-force and all that looks okay until you're on it. Amen. And so you get on it, and it starts twirling around like this. It starts very slow. But where it gets you is it starts to tilt. It goes from like this, and it starts to tilt to the side. And it's tilting to the side and going like this. Again, I'm just recovering, barely recovering from the rocket plane. And now I'm on the cyclone, and this thing is spinning. Again, true to, true to, true to, true to just tradition, I started crying again. Stop the ride. Please stop it. you got to get up. And everybody around me is yelling and screaming. I'm the only one crying. Please stop the ride. Well, again, a three, four-minute ride felt like three years now by that time. Crazy me. I said, how do you feel, Grace? She said, I feel okay. I said, well, let's do it again. I was nuts. I did it again. We did it again. I went twice on that. I got so sick from all this. I didn't, I didn't lose my lunch. I didn't lose my breakfast. But I was so sick. I was staggering like this. I couldn't see straight. We couldn't do anything. We tried to go on some other things. We lasted maybe another half hour, hour. Finally said, honey, I can't make it. Let's go to the car. I got I to gotta lay down for a minute. I went down to the car. I, I, I was like this. And, and I realized I'm just not going to make it. My head was spinning out of control. I felt like I was still upside down. I felt like I was walking on my head. She had to drive us back from Santa Cruz back all the way home. And I made a decision that day. I'm never going to go on those rides again. That was a good decision. Amen. You know, when you're upside down, there's no progress. You're upside down, things are out of control. You know, when you're upside down, you think you're in control, but you're not in control. When things are upside down, you feel vulnerable and that you feel like you can be taken advantage of. When you're upside down, the only thing you're thinking about is you want to be right side up. Maybe you have some things upside down in your life this morning. Finances, family, emotionally. Maybe COVID-19 has you literally climbing the walls. This week, three people that I know of tested positive for COVID-19. One was hospitalized yesterday. Fortunately, they didn't have to go on oxygen, and it doesn't look like they have to be intubated. But at prayer time at 5, and asked several of the men that was on it to pray with me. Some of the men were praying with me through the night for them and got a good message this morning. They're doing better. But if it happened to you, there's a lot of things going through your mind that feels upside down. We all can relate to an experience in our life when something happened. We felt upside down. Look what God told Jerusalem in verse 16. Surely you're turning of things upside down. Just like I made a voluntary decision to get on the rocket plane and the cyclone, and I wound up upside down. The nation of Judah, their capital city of Jerusalem, made a decision that turned them upside down. Notice, first of all, this morning, the cause for being upside down. The Bible says in verse 1, if you'll look at it, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. God gives the reasons here in verses 1 and 13, at least two reasons I'm going to give this morning, two causes, two reasons why the spiritual situation in Jerusalem was upside down. The first, if you'll notice, was, a, was because of a dismantled worship. The word Ariel means lion of God. 
Ariel, as you read verse 1, is referring to the city of Jerusalem. He tells us specifically the place where David dwelt. David made Jerusalem his home city. He made it the capital city. It was also the place where David moved the sacrifices of God and decided that, that the temple worship would be there one day and the sacrifices of God would be done there. Ariel, as we read our Bible, means Lion of God. It was a fitting name. A lion represents the king of the beast. David was considered the king that was the most dominant of his time. And as a lion of God, he represented God. He was fierce, and he never lost a battle. He represented God well. But Ariel also is used to refer to an altar. In Ezekiel 43, 16, we have a reference there where God speaks about the altar in Ezekiel's and Ezekiel's uh, talk about the temple in heaven. And the word that's used there for the word altar is the same word we find here in verse 1. It's the word Ariel. Now, it means this. Ariel can mean Jerusalem. Ariel also refers to an altar, a fiery altar. We think of a hearth. We think of a fireplace. You know, I uh, one of my, my dreams, one of these days, as the Lord would give me desire, hope that one of we can convert one of our rooms into, into or, or build out a room that we'd call the fireside room. A fireside room, you think of a fireside chat. You think of a family time. Uh, I'd like to have something like that with a mantle on there and, a, and a, a fake fire type of thing that we can put there just for fellowship and discussion times and meetings and things of that nature there. But when we think of a fireplace, we think of something where there's a fire burning and roasting and so forth like that. And for the Jews, the altar of God God was a significant place. The altar was where God's people met with God. The altar was a place of worship. The altar was a place of devotion. The altar was a place of sacrifices. Now, when you had sacrifices, you had to have a fire. The most prominent, one of the most prominent ones they had was the burnt offering. The burnt offering they had every single day. A fire had to be put at its extreme, at its fullest. On that altar every day, the priest would come. They would offer an entire sacrifice uh, on that day. The burnt offering was a picture. It was a symbol of the dedication of the Christian life, of giving my all to the Lord. We know about that because in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we're called upon to give our bodies or dedicate our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. That's God's way of saying, I, I love the dead sacrifices. It represents something good. But for you in this New Testament era, God wants a living sacrifice. In fact, God is saying he finds us better, better alive than dead right now because God has something worthwhile he wants us to fulfill. But for the Jews, the burnt offering was a significant time. But notice this. God had a problem with the fire on their altar. God had a problem with the altar. God had a problem with the fire on the altar. Notice what he says there. Add ye year to year. Let them kill sacrifices. He says they're having their sacrifices year by year. They're doing it. They're having the sacrifice. They're killing them, and they're doing it year by year. But God said, yet I will distress Ariel. Now, the problem was with their fire. We know that fire is an imperative. You cannot have a burnt offering without a fire. You see, this morning as we consider fire, God is looking at the fire of our heart, the fire in our souls. You see, we have the problem of a diminishing fire. A diminishing fire is when the flame is going out and when there's not enough fuel, there's not enough wood, there's not enough coal. And when the, when the fuel diminishes, the fire diminishes. 
We may be lacking fuel in our heart. We may be lacking fire in our soul. It could be that COVID-19 has caused our fire to diminish. There's a problem of a diminishing fire. There's a problem of a defiled fire. A defiled fire reminds me of Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron who were priests. And they were told by God in the book of Leviticus to not offer a strange fire. A fire, a fire, if you would, mingled with the wrong elements. A strange fire is, is basically symbolic of using worldly means and materialistic means to please God. And they offered a strange fire, and God killed them for doing such a thing. A strange fire is something that's unauthorized and profane before God. It's trying to serve God in the flesh. We need to serve Him in the spirit. There's a diminishing fire. There's a defiled fire. But then I think about the departed fire. I think of over there in 1 Kings chapter 18, the prophet Elijah, when he challenged the prophets of Baal to meet him on Mount Carmel. And he said, let's see which God proves himself by fire. And so the prophets of Baal spent the entire day cutting themselves and doing all these things, but no fire came down from heaven. And fire will never come down from heaven for, for, for a false god. And then Isaiah, then he's, uh, if you would, Elijah went to an altar where Israel had once frequented, an altar where burnt offerings were made and other, other offerings were made. But this altar had been broken. It had been neglected. There had been no fire on it for many, many days and many, many years. And so the Bible says he, re he repaired the broken altar. There had been a fire that departed. You know, when we're in, our, we're in a Christian life, one of three things happens to us. Our fire could be diminishing, our fire could be defiled, or our fire could be departed. You know, our fire this morning is important. We must have a fire in our heart for God. Show me your fire, and I'll show you what kind of fear you have for God. Show me your fire, and I'll show you what kind of devotion you have for God. Show me your fire, and I'll show you your zeal for God. Show me your fire, and I'll show you what kind of soul winner you are. Show me your fire, and I'll show you what kind of prayer life you have. I'm saying this morning, the fire determines where we go with our Christian life. And these Jews, they had a problem. The fire was departed, the fire was diminished, the fire was defiled as far as God was concerned. God had a problem with them. They were, they were upside down because of a dismantled worship. But notice verse 13, there was a second cause. God had a problem with the worship. God had a problem with their words. We see in verse 13, they had dissimulating or hypocritical words. In the book of Romans chapter 12, the word dissimulation, we're told not to, to practice our love for each other in dissimulation. Dissimulation is a word that basically means in pretense or in hypocrisy. And the Bible says here in verse 13, God had a problem with their heart and a problem with the words because they were showing lip service to God. They had mouth religion, but no heart religion. Look at verse 13. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips to honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the precept of men. Judah and Jerusalem got to a place where they just they were paying lip service to God. Now you know what I'm talking about. We, if you've been around the Christian life long enough, we know all the lingo. We know the Christian lingo. We know the Bible lingo. We know the Baptist lingo. We know when to say praise the Lord. We need to know to say hallelujah. We know when to say amen. We know how to say hey brother, hey sister. We know all the Christian lingo. We know what to say at the right time. And our heart may not be right. And we may feel very miserable that day. But we put a smile on our face and we look like we're okay. And we say all the right things. And everybody around us at church thinks everything's going good. But deep down inside, we're rotting on the inside because we know that things aren't 
right. And what he's talking about here is something that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 and 8, he uses the same verse, Isaiah 29, 13, to speak against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees where they exalted traditions over the commandments of God. You know, we've got a lot of things that we do. And that, that we do. We have policies. For instance, if you go on our website, we have a 30-page policy for COVID-19. We tell people they've got to wear their mask. We tell people they've got to social distance. We tell people that after our, between our services and after our services, we're going, to, we're going to spray down the building with electrostatic cleaner to clean everything out. We wipe down the doors. We've got all these things. We've got a church constitution to give us polity and direction for what we do. We've got manuals at, at, for the office staff. We've got all these policies. But let me tell you something this morning. When our constitution and our policies and our traditions and how we do things interfere with the Word of God, we are at a place where we've turned things upside down. And that's what they were doing here. They drew near to God with their mouth, but their heart was far from God. You see this morning, we sing, oh, how I love Jesus, but we don't love Jesus enough to be at his church whenever the doors are open. And we don't love Jesus enough to read his word every day. And we don't love Jesus enough to sing loudly from our hearts. And we don't love Jesus enough to give him an offering. We sing, oh, I love Jesus, but our heart is far from him. We sing, I love to tell the story, but we can't remember the last time we told somebody with tears in our eyes and a breaking our heart that we were burdened for their soul, that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. We sing, what a friend we have in Jesus, yet the, we cannot remember the very last time we spent time earnestly in prayer before God. We worship God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. The Bible says here that there was a cause for their being upside down. Their heart was not right with God. They were not near to the Lord. Their fire was diminishing. Their heart was far from God. But notice, secondly, this morning, we see the cause, but there's also the consequences. The Bible tells us that for sin, there, there, the, there are the wages of sin. There's consequences for sin. When we sin, there is a payment that's associated with it. And God lays out for us here in chapter 29 three of the consequences they face because they, they were upside down. Notice consequence number one is found in verses 9 to 12. In verses 9 to 12, the very first thing we see is that they were blinded. They were blinded. Just like I got off that rocket plane and the cyclone, even though I could see with my eyes, I couldn't see straight. Everything was spinning around. Everything was going different directions. I did not feel very good. I just could not see straight. I couldn't read straight. Notice what God says to them. He says in verse 9, he uses a number of colorful analogies to help us understand how upside down they were. He said, they are drunken but not with wine. They staggered but not with strong drink. He said they were walking and conducting themselves as if they were intoxicated, but they were not. He said they were walking like drunken men. He said they were, they were carrying themselves on, but they were not consumed with strong drink. Then he goes on in verse 10. He says, the Lord has poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep. Now, that's kind of interesting because that caught my attention. When we get saved, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He makes residence in us. We ought to praise God for that this morning. Amen. He resides in us. He's not going to leave us. But beyond the residency of the Holy Spirit, we must have the filling of the Spirit. We must be under the control of the Spirit. We must walk in the Spirit so that we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. God said here they were so upside down. God did not send them the filling of the Spirit. God gave them a spirit of deep sleep. So notice in verse 11, 10, so that their eyes were closed. I don't know if you've ever walked in your sleep or known anybody's walked in their sleep. It's one thing for someone to walk in their sleep with their eyes open. That's pretty spooky. 
It's another thing for someone to walk with their eyes closed and bump into things. I mean, it's pretty scary. God said they were at a place where he put a deep sleep over them and their eyes were closed. They couldn't see. And then he uses another analogy. Look at verse, verse 11. He says, and the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed. He said, listen, I've given you your word, but you treat the word of God as if it's sealed and you need someone to break the seal Just like we saw in Revelation, you need someone to break the seal so you can read it. And here's what their excuse was. They said, we cannot see. We're staggering around. We don't know where we're going. And he said, read this, I pray thee. And the response they gave him was, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then they made the excuse that they were ignorant and unlearned. He said later on in verse 13, uh, verse 12, and the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, read this, I pray thee. And he said, I am not learned. Well, you know what? You may not be learned, and you may be ignorant, cannot read, but you can listen and hear. The Bible says faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. God gives faith. God can speak to us as we hear the word of God. God compensates for our ignorance, if you would, or our inability to read. But all I'm saying here is that they were blinded. They were blinded by their own choice. They were blinded because they were upside down. You see, when we are upside down spiritually, and our life is upside down, nothing looks right. Nothing seems straight. We cannot see clearly. Things are obscure and things are darkened. We just cannot see very clearly. And we're languishing in that. There's something else God said. Not only were they blinded, but notice in verses, verses uh, 2 and 3. God said in verses 2 and 3, they were besieged. To be besieged means you are, in, you are encircled. The enemy will come and put forts around you and encircle you, and you'll feel like there's no way out. This happened twice to Jerusalem. The first time was a few years after this was written under the reign of King Hezekiah. Sennacherib, representing Assyria, encircled, we'll preach on this in a few chapters, encircled the entire city. Their food supply, their water supply was affected. They were in danger of collapsing under the pressure. And when you're encircled and your watchmen are watching the tower, they can't find a way out. You can't find a way out. The second time would be years later when Nebuchadnezzar would lead Babylon and over several years would cut off the food supply, encircle their very cities, cut off their water supply, and encircle them. And basically, it was just like a walk in the park when they went in and defeated Jerusalem. God said, you're so upside down, you're vulnerable to attack. You're so upside down, you are besieged, you want out, but there's no way out. And I don't know about you, but when you are encircled, when you're so upside down and you feel like your problem is bigger than you, and you even imagine that your problem is bigger than God, you feel like you're choked out, you feel like you're being trampled on, and there's nowhere to go. God was telling them, you are besieged, you're encompassed by your own sins. Thirdly, they were not only besieged, they were not only blinded, but what you notice verses, what you notice verses 4 to 6. They were broken. Thou shalt be brought down. Here was Jerusalem, just like Israel, boasting, feasting, partying, having a good time. 
shutting off the prophecies of God's word from Isaiah and other prophets. Now they're at this critical place. They're upside down. They were walking blindly. They were besieged. And now in verse 4, God says to them, I'm going to humble you. And he says, thou shalt speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. Instead of boasting, they're whispering. You know what I mean by this. If you've ever had a humiliating experience, you're not boasting. In fact, you don't really want to talk. You feel embarrassed. You feel ashamed. And you talk in a very low tone. He, he used some language here in identifying where they're at. He said, you're going to be brought so low, you're going to be speaking as if you were out, come speaking out of the ground. You're going to be speaking like someone who practices witchcraft. You're going to be speaking in a low murmur. You don't want people to hear what you've got to say. You don't really want to admit that you've been humiliated and humbled and God has brought you down. They were broken. They were humbled. Then notice verse 15. God said this. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark, and they say, Who seeth us not, and who knoweth us not? You know what's happening here? This is the second time God uses the word woe. And Jerusalem secretly, or they thought secretly, they had, they had went out and sent some ambassadors down to Egypt to hire Egypt out to come protect them because they knew the Assyrians were there. And so they cut this deal with the Assyrians, and they said, listen, if the Assyrians come, you come and help us. And, of course, the Egyptians, which were mercenaries, they were, they were paid for hire. They, of course, would accept the gold and silver for such a thing. But God said, you did this thinking you could hide it from me. You thought you could get outside help. You know, a lot of times when we're so upside down, we're afraid to come to the preacher. We're afraid to tell God. We're afraid to tell our spouse. We're afraid to tell somebody else. And so we cut a deal with somebody else. We'll let somebody else know who perhaps may not be the most appropriate person for us to share it with. We'll share with them our heartache. We'll share with them our burden. They'll tell us what they think. But, you know, when they tell us what they think, that does not necessarily mean they tell us the mind of God. And so God was telling them, woe to them that seek secret counsel. And then he said in verse 16, he summed it all up. He says, your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay, for shall the work say of him that made it. Now, God was saying this. The reason why I have to turn you upside down is because, and I have to bring, bring you down, is because you're like clay that is telling the potter, no, I don't want you telling me what to do with my life. Jeremiah used the same analogy. If you've ever been to a place, a pottery place, where they make pottery, this, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, very... Uh, um, amazing work when you watch that. A potter gets a spinning wheel and a dead lump of clay. And because he's done this and experienced the combination of spinning that wheel with his foot and taking water, he starts to spin this lifeless lump of clay which looks like a piece of junk. And he starts to spin it and he molds it into a very beautiful piece of pottery, clay pottery. Very beautiful. And the more he works on it, the more he works on it, it becomes more beautiful. And he has in his mind an idea of what he wants it to be. It might be a beautiful vase. might be a beautiful bowl. Whatever it is, is going to be beautiful. And it's all done after they paint it, other things. But he shapes it. But he said, you've gotten to the place. You don't realize that you're a lump of clay that's in my hands. But instead of letting me control you, you're, you're resisting me and letting me do what I want to do in your life. You see, brother and sister in Christ, when God doesn't have his way, when God is not allowed to work on our life to take this lump of clay and to turn it into something beautiful and we're resisting God, our world eventually winds up upside down. We're blinded, we're besieged, and eventually we're going to be broken. 
we're upside down. That day when we were finished with the boardwalk at Santa Cruz, I realized at that moment I could not fight being dizzy, having a loss of equilibrium, and I surrendered the car keys to my wife and asked her to drive me home, to drive us home. I had to trust her to drive those winding roads of Highway 17 to get back to 880 to get us home. And when you're upside down, listen to me, when you're upside down, God is looking for you and I to come to that realization that we give him the car keys and let him have control of our life. And instead of resisting him, he's able to have control. We see a cause. We see a consequence. I've got good news for you. There's a cure. There's a cure for when we're upside down that can make us right set up. Notice in verses 18 and 24 very quickly, we see this cure. The cure is God's way of helping us get right side up. First of all, would you notice in verse 18, he speaks to us about conviction. Now, I had a conviction, Brother Aaron. I had a conviction that I'm not going to go on a rocket plane or cyclone anymore after that day. A conviction is saying, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to change that. You couldn't pay me to get back on a cyclone or rock a plane. Now, if we had a building campaign, maybe I'll change mine for a building campaign, okay? I'll get sick for that. But no, I, made a, I had a conviction. I'm not going to do it anymore. I just realized I'm not fit for those kind of rides. A conviction is in our mind when we come to our senses. A conviction is when we want no more of being upside down. A conviction is when you hear for the first time, the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, your mind, your conscience. Notice verse 18. And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book. You know what they did? Instead of being deaf to the message of God, instead of being deaf to the word of God, they listened. They were not born hearing impaired. They were not born with a need for increasing the, uh, going to an audiologist increased hearing. They chose to be deaf. But he said in that day when they get convi- they're convicted that they've been upside down too long, he said, the deaf shall hear the words of the book. And then notice this, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Because he said when we have conviction, we're able to see clearly. Now watch this. Obscurity means You can see something, but you're not sure what it is. It might be a shadow. It might be being in a dark cave, and you're starting to see light, and you're trying to detect what that image is. It doesn't mean that you're completely darkened. It just means that it seems shadowy. It's not clear to you. Darkness, on the hand, literally means you can't see a thing. You're walking in the dark. And God said here, the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Previously said they were blinded. Now he said they can see. You know what God is saying to us? When we have the conviction in our heart that we don't want to be upside down and we want to follow God's way of being right side up, we are able to hear, we're able to see. Look at verse 24, something else that goes with conviction. They also that eared in spirit shall come to understanding. Now, when we have conviction, you know what God is telling us here? This is good. This is really good. 
He says, they that have eared in spirit shall come to understanding. Earing in spirit is that when we're upside down, we're too proud to admit we're upside down. And we have a bad attitude. We have a bad spirit. If your family life is upside down, if your spiritual life is upside down, if your work life is upside down, you know what we find ourselves doing? We're blaming the pastor. We're blaming a brother in Christ. We're blaming, blaming our spouse. We're blaming our mother. We're blaming our father. I'm a victim of this, victim of that. We're blaming everybody else. You know what he said? They that are in the spiritual understanding. The problem is never with someone else. The problem is always with me and God. They that eared in spirit shall have understanding. Then notice something else he says. And they that murmured shall learn doctrine. Now, they that murmured, you understand that phrase. Moses, every time he had to deal with Israel, they, there was a step of faith. They murmured. They talked in a low tone. They were grumbling against Moses. And here's what happens. We may be competent about doctrine. We may be able to articulate on doctrine, but we're not living out our doctrine. We have dead orthodoxy, as the theologians would say. And God says here, you know, when our life goes from being upside down to right side up, instead of murmuring and complaining, we become teachable. Because the moment to understand you're going, you're going in the wrong direction, you're going upside down, is when you lose that teachability, that hunger and thirst in your soul to receive the wonderful Word of God in your life. There's conviction. Notice, secondly, in verse 19, there must be confession. We can, get upside, we can go from upside down to right side up when in our heart we realize we're convicted, and conviction leads to to confession. Now, what is confession? Confession is an open, sincere, truthful, convicted acknowledgement that we are wrong and God is right. Now, notice in verse 19, two words point out to us confession. In fact, these two words tell us the essential of a biblical confession. Because if these two things are not there, our confession is just we're drawing near to God with our mouth, but our heart is far from him. Notice the word number one is the word meek. What does it mean to be meek? I'm going to declare to you this morning, I believe meekness is more than humility. Meekness is Moses, as Israel complained and they threatened to kill him, he got on his knees and prayed for them. Meekness is Moses being up on the mountaintop for 40 days, walking with God, having the presence of God over his life. In fact, having such presence of God on him, his face shined as the sun. Coming down and watching them with a broken heart, worshiping a golden calf. In righteous indignation, he took the two tablets of stone, and he was acting a little bit impulsively there, and he thrust down those two tablets of stone and broke them. And he went and approached them, and, and he rebuked them for their sin. But in his heart, he knew the judgment of God would come down on them. Here's meekness. You know what Moses did? Instead of saying, yeah, God, go ahead and take care of them. Go ahead, God, and wipe them out and let's start all over. You know what Moses did? Moses got on his face and publicly praying before those people. This is what he said. Lord, I would please forgive them. I would rather you blot my name out of your book than for them to be blotted out. Literally, Moses was saying this. God, I'd rather spend eternity in hell for these people so that they can have forgiveness and experience the joy.
joy of your salvation. That's meekness. Meekness is in the sight of God of great price. Meekness is being teachable. Meekness is, is understanding it's the fruit of the Spirit. Meekness is letting God work on us. Meekness is realizing you're not right all the time, that sometimes even if you're right, you need to be quiet and let God work in your heart. That's confession to God. That's being meek. But there's a second thing. Not only meek, we must be poor in spirit. Now, whenever you see the word poor in the Bible, be very careful you read the word poor in the, in the context of where it's written. Many times people will read poor and they'll think it's talking about being financially poor. Now, there are places where the Bible says that, but that's not what it means many times. Most of the time, the poorness he's referring to there is poor in spirit, a broken heart, a broken and contrite spirit. It's when you come to the end of yourself. And here's what he's saying. Notice verse 19. The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor, that is those who are broken in spirit, who have come to the end of themselves among men, shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Poor in spirit is realizing it's not about me, it's about God. There's a cure. There's a way out. There's a way of getting right things, uh, right things up, uh, right side up when you're upside down. There's a cause. There's a consequence. There's God's cure. And would you notice the contentment? Look at some verses as we close this morning. You know, when you're right side up, things are going good. When you're right side up, you're not staggering. You're walking in a straight line. When you're right side up, you don't feel sick to the stomach and sick to the head. When you're right side up, your head isn't pounding. When you're right side up, you, you have happiness and joy and the sun is shining. When you're right side up, you know things are right with you and things are right with God. You know things are right with other people and things are right with you. You notice when, think, when you're right set up, you're in the right path at the right time in the right place. Notice God tells us of some of the fruit of the contentment. Notice some of Notice verse 17. In verse 17, he says, Is it not yet a very little while? And Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest. Watch what's going on here. Israel and Judah had gotten to place in Jerusalem. They came to, they came to a halt. They were stagnated. And now God says, now listen, you get things right side up. You come with contriteness, and you have conviction about your sin, and you confess your sin. You know what you're going to do? He says, I'm going to take Lebanon, which was known for its forest. The fruitful field, he said, shall become a forest. Listen, God wants us to bear fruit. Then notice something else. He says this. Go down here to verse, uh, notice verse 19. We just saw that. He said, and the meek shall increase their joy in the Lord. Listen, he didn't just say, I'll give you back your joy. Because the Bible says the joy, the joy cometh in the morning. And the Bible says the joy of the Lord is their strength. He said, the meek shall increase their joy. Now, that's a promise of God. And God never backs down on his promises. He promises us that we will increase in joy. I don't know about you, but during this COVID-19, have you increased in joy? Have during COVID-19 and all the things that have gone on, have you increased with the joy of the Lord? Has your, has your happiness content gone up? Has your joy content gone up? Or has it gone down? Uh, this past, I've been sharing with the church for several several weeks since we've been under the shelter in place in COVID-19. And you've heard me preach this on live stream. I've said many times, let's take advantage of this to find people that we know that are without, that are without Jesus Christ. Refer them to me. Get me involved. Engage me with you to help lead them to Christ. And one of our, one of our post-grad students 
contacted me a few weeks ago. In fact, the student's here today, and they contacted me a few weeks ago. Said, Pastor, I've got a burden for one of my teachers. I just started to talking to one of my professors, and I think I got an open door to witness to them. And they said, uh, and they were asking me for counsel, what to do. And, they, and then finally, the, the the student said, Pastor, is there any way I can introduce you to the to the professor? I said, Absolutely. I said, Let's pray over this right now. Let's let God work through this matter. And at the right time, right place, God will show you when it's the time we can you can invite the instructor to have for us to have a Zoom call. Well, the, the, our students saw that opportunity. And on Monday, they contacted me and said, Pastor, is there any way we, we can do a Zoom conference call with my, my instructor? Uh, she's, she's interested in talking with you and wanted to know more about being saved and so forth like that. And I said, sure. So I said, they said, well, I know you're very busy. I said, don't worry about it. I'm going to make time. So we scheduled Thursday night at 7 o'clock. I sent the invitation out, and I really wasn't sure if they were going to accept it. I really wasn't sure if they were going to show up. And I texted our student on Thursday afternoon. I said, oh, okay, now we're at 7 o'clock. Please remind them we're going to be meet, meeting each other at 7 o'clock. And I wasn't sure if they'd be scared of seeing my face on Zoom and whatever there. So we got on at 7, and the instructor showed up, and our church member showed up, and we started talking. And this is what the professor said. She said, Pastor Fong was born, and she told me the country. I was born in this country, and I was born to Christian families. And I thought, Lord, thank you for giving me the open door right there. And I explained to that person, being born in a Christian family is good. Being born in a Christian family is not going to get you into heaven. You need to be born again. You need to have a spiritual birth. And at that point, the Lord just kind of took the conversation. For the next hour, we just went back and forth and sharing the gospel, talking about the grace of God, talking about what the spiritual new birth was all about. And as I got towards the tail end, I went through a series of questions twice, asking this professor if they, if they felt like God was moving their heart. And she said, Pastor, I would like to receive Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I led her in prayer. She called on the Lord to save her. Listen, I, I told, I, we were thankful. I shared some verses with them. And then that morning, I, I told our church member, I said, listen, I'm going to send a message in the morning. I want to see if there's real sincerity behind this. Sometimes you really want to test if the person is really sincere or not. I sent a message that morning, and I said, I sent it to the professor. I said, hey, rejoice in you that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you're born into God's family. I gave a bunch of verses for assurance of salvation. Within the hour, the professor got back to me, and this is what she said in her opening sentence. She said, thank you for sharing with me God's word. I'm thankful I was born again into the family of God. Those are her words. I'm thankful I was born again in the family of God. You know what happened for me Saturday morning? My joy was increased. I'm saying this morning, when, you're, when things are right side up, there's an increase of joy. The meek shall increase their joy, and the poor in spirit among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Then notice quickly verses 22 and 23. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, who redeemed Abraham, concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed. Watch this. When we're upside down, you know what happens? There's the pride in us that's ashamed to admit we need God. And we're pale and faced, and we're ashamed. And so instead of asking for help, you know what we do? We withdraw ourselves. The most spiritual of us even get to the place when we need help, we're afraid to ask for help. And God said, now you come to me with meekness and poor in spirit. He says, I've got things right set up. You don't have to be ashamed anymore. And I'm going to tell you this morning, God might be speaking to you about having an upside-down faith, an upside-down finances, upside-down family, upside-down situation. You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to be embarrassed. You don't have to walk around with a pale face like the colors drain out of you. We have a God in heaven who loves you, who wants to restore you, who wants to gift you, who wants to help you, who wants to raise you and get you from being upside-down to being right-side-up. Then he said this, and I'm done. But when he seeth his children, the work of my hands, in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God 
of Israel. You know what he's saying there? When you're right side up, God is not behind you. You set God apart, sanctified. You set God apart. He's in his rightful place. He's at the front. He's at the side. He's at the end. He's preeminent in every area of your life. You've set him apart in worship. You've set him apart your daily walk. You've set him apart in your devotion. You've just sanctified the Lord your God. If you're upside down, there's only one place to go. And that's to be right side up. Are you right side up in your faith? Are you right side up in your joy? Are you right side up in your spiritual health? Are things spinning out of control? Are you staggering like a drunken man? It doesn't have to stay that way. Our God in heaven makes things right side up. There must be conviction. There must be confession. If you're watching by live stream this morning, and you're watching through the auditorium, things can become right side up when it's a starting point. By faith, you repent of your sins. And receive God's Son, Jesus Christ, as your Savior. You need to be born again into God's family. Coming from a religious background, born, in, born into a religious family does not save your soul. Only Jesus Christ can save your soul. It's not through rituals. It's not through traditions. It's not through practices. It's faith alone in Jesus Christ. Repentance of sins and faith alone in Jesus Christ that can save you. If you're not sure you're saved, whether in this room or watching by live stream, I'm going to help you this morning so you can make certain of that. So that today, July 5th, Sunday, July 5th, you can point to that day and say that I've been born again into the family of God.